everyone. Good morning. I'm going to be reading Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18, but I'm going to be reading in Spanish. For that reading. Good morning, everybody. My name is Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm super excited to share this morning with you and continue in worship together. Thanks, Josh and team, for uh, worship to get us to this point. We have been on a journey. If you, this is your first Sunday with us in a bit, then let me catch you up on what we've been doing together. We've been uh, teaching and preaching for the last couple of months now on what we would call like basics of the faith or foundations, sort of core convictions and beliefs, orthodoxy, doctrine, whatever fancy multiple syllable word you would like to use for it. And today we're talking about salvation or atonement. So we've been, you know, we start with, uh, God, then Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit. We talked about Trinity. We've sort of been through a whole array of things. We talked about sin last week, so we'll start there. And today we're going to talk about salvation. Specifically, what is the work that Jesus Christ is doing that affords us restitution, a saving, rescue, forgiveness, all of the sort of things we think about when we think about salvation? Okay? That's where we're going to be together and... We also have a lot of things happening after worship, so I'm very aware of time. Let me say at the front end here, and this is just sort of an inner anxiety that I need to evidence at the start, we are not going to be able to say everything there is to say about this. Of course we're not. And so part of the beauty of worship together, of rhythms, of liturgy, is that we don't have to say the whole story all at once every time. But in fact, we are in a rhythm together that I would invite you back into. If this is not a regular part of your weekly cycle to show up on a Sunday in a worship context, then there's a lot about this story that you will gather over time. So maybe this is just kind of an introduction into this really big idea of what Jesus is doing in life, death, and resurrection. All right, that's where we're heading together. Let me uh, show you just one first picture. that It just made me laugh, and I just want to show it to you. Uh, so you know this famous picture of Jesus knocking at the door, right? It's kind of this image. I, I knock. Uh, will someone answer? <laughs> right, so Jesus says, let me in. And whoever's behind the door, well, why? And Jesus says, so I can save you. Which a good question next is like, from what? Uh, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in? Uh, let's, be, like, let's be honest. There is a sense when we think about uh, salvation or atonement. There's, at least for me, I'll name kind of an underlying anxiety that I'm not quite sure just how upset God is with me. And then I'm not quite sure all the times how to say sorry for all of those things I've done or left undone. And sometimes the logic that we hear about salvation is quite circular. Uh, so something has happened that's ruptured our relationship with God and with our own kind of human story. Uh, and in this telling, like Jesus is going to, if you don't sort of let Jesus come in and solve the problem, then you are the problem that Jesus is trying to solve. It's a very sort of circular logic. I'm going to invite us out of that mode. Um, and what I want to do today is just kind of paint a really broad picture of the traditions and history that lead us to the way we think about salvation today. And then maybe nuance that a little bit with what the church has named as atonement across like 2,000 years. And we might get done in time. Last week, we finished with this image of the, the effects of the wages of sin. All right, so if you weren't with us last week, then I want you to sort of like take a deep breath and call to your own mind what shows up when you hear the word sin. Now, not the like really bad versions that just make you recoil, but the parts that you can understand and participate in. 
the ways in which you know that you have lost the plot or that you feel trapped in systems that are not for your benefit or that make you feel really far away from the relationships that you know would bring you wholeness and hope. So last week we talked about the ways that sin works is it fractures and alienates us from our primal belongings. And, and those are sort of four, at least four really distinct relationships. Sin fractures our relationship with God, the source of all life. And out of that fracturing, evidence is at least three other sort of breaking aparts. Uh, our relationship with others. Right? I don't know how to love you like you ought to be loved as God's child. And that love is not always returned in its sort of purest, selfless understanding. And that moves apart even further into kinds of violence that we will do to one another in that separation. We know this one pretty well. I don't have to articulate too much about what it means to be at odds with our neighbor or with our enemies. Or with the ideas, the stereotypes we carry around about our enemies and our neighbors. The other separation is that separation between us and creation. That the ground we stand on doesn't feel like home anymore. The ways that this uh, earth, this environment, ecology, plants and animals, it just doesn't feel as much like we are settled in our right relationship with it. And that's not a very hard one to explain or understand either. We talked about mass extinction and we talked about uh, the changes and the sort of retching that we can feel inside of creation. Paul says all creation is groaning an eager expectation for the redemption of the children of god yeah fractured and then also the ways that sin that our decisions fracture our own internal understandings of ourselves often whenever people find themselves in addictive cycles and patterns it can create this kind of like shame that weighs in heavily and can all of a sudden we feel like strangers unto ourselves We feel like we're not worthy of love or of kindness or of forgiveness. We feel like uh, sort of the wrath of all of the world is sitting on our shoulders. We look in the mirror and we don't know who we are anymore. That's what sin does, right? It fractures all of these things. So then the question this week is, what is it about Jesus that heals this divide? Last night, as I was falling asleep, is a pattern on Saturday night's I don't work on my sermons on Saturdays. That, that needs to sit and rest. I need to trust God with the work that I've done through the week and that God has given me the language for the day. Um, but often on Saturday nights, as I'm falling asleep, I'll like look at the passage right before I go to sleep because often the last thing I do sort of sits in my subconscious through the night. Um, and I remember having this thought that I just really quickly scribbled down uh, about this kind of transition that I've been feeling around these ideas. Um, So I just wrote down, and this is where I feel myself settling a lot of the times. I don't want to admit how my decisions drive me far from God, but it's the truth. It's just hard for me to admit that the things that I do or leave undone have these kinds of consequences. Now, whether God can't abide sinners, right, this sort of whatever we do that fractures the world, or that sinners can't abide the sacred, and this is the tension that we are holding, is it God that can't look upon this kind of behavior, or is it that when we enter into these kinds of patterns, we simply can't imagine engaging with the divine? Either way, the gulf persists. That's the guiding sort of reality that I feel a lot. The gulf persists. The separation and the fracturing, it just is. You and I feel that all the time. The last thing we said last week, though, is that somehow Christ moves into that space of separation. Ephesians talks about how 
in Christ, the dividing wall, it's, it's shattered. And these, these two enemies are brought back together into one family. This kind of uniting happens. That God in Christ moves into the space of loneliness and undoes it from within. So the question today is how? What are the different modes, understandings, metaphors that are used, both in the text and in tradition, that explain sort of unwind uh, atonement? Now, atonement is this funky church word. You might think about it as like, um, at one mint. What is it that brings all of these things that are broken back together? That's the idea of salvation. Whatever's been rendered apart, that God in Christ is bringing it back together into wholeness. One of my favorite authors says in his book, Unapologetic, Francis Spufford is his name, uh, has this recurring phrase that says, far more can be mended than you know. That feels like atonement to me. So you've got on the front of your uh, bulletins today these three images And each of these three images are these three dominant understandings of salvation or atonement that we're going to walk through today. One of them you're likely very, very familiar with. If you grew up either in an Eastern understanding of Christianity, so like um, Greek Orthodox, Coptic, uh, Christian or something, you might have a firmer understanding of some of the ones that are more obscured for us. But likely one of these has been the like big dominant image of salvation. We'll talk about that, but we're going to, we're going to complicate it a little bit. Okay. So we've got three. I'll walk through them, but I want to tell you what they are as you see them all together. Uh, and I'm going to be asking you for the next 30 minutes or so to hold a lot of ideas in your mind. I'll do my very best to keep us oriented. Um, but again, this is just the beginning of a conversation around atonement. So we've got time together. Come join us back at Lent and Easter, and we'll keep talking about this. On the far left side, we've got what is definitely the most dominant understanding of salvation or atonement. And that is this, uh, what you might call like satisfaction theory or um, penal substitutionary atonement, which is just a funny phrase to say now. But that is the most common one, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit. The middle one that sort of grew up alongside a substitutionary atonement is this uh, theory called moral influence. And then on the far right side, which is actually the oldest of the atonement theories, and the one that I'm asking us to recover like right in the center of our life together is something called Christus Victor, which you can guess what that means. Uh, Christ victorious. Got it? Substitutionary atonement or satisfaction. It goes by a lot of names on the left, the middle, moral influence. On the right, Christus Victor. And each of these are kind of evidenced by these images that we've drawn. So, so uh, want to talk about them? Let's go. <gasps> Satisfaction. This is the idea. By the way, I'm not asking you to choose. Often, different traditions have asked us to choose between these as though images and metaphors for what God is up to are in competition with one another. That is actually not the way that we understand the story the Bible is telling. There are sometimes tensions that feel unresolvable, but often these are different valences or perspectives in on one big story. And so the way the Bible tells it and the way tradition tells it has to be nuanced because at different times, our separation from God, one another, creation, and ourselves feels different. It takes on different like modes and nuance. Sometimes the distance feels one way, sometimes it feels another. And for each of those, there's a way to understand what Christ is doing that speaks to the pain. And speaks to the hope. So satisfaction, this is the most common. You have, in this fist coming down, this sort of idea that sin creates 
a kind of vacuum that has to be filled. That sin either dishonors God or that sin violates some kind of primal law. And so there's got to be justice. There's got to be a like paying of the debt. There's got to be somebody who gets punished. These are the kind of ideas that are inside of this. There's got to be something that satisfies the needs of justice. So our sin, what we do and what we leave undone, it violates some kind of sacred order. And God has to set that order right. And so there's going to be justice. There's going to be some kind of a restitution paid. And so often in sometimes maybe some of the sketchier understandings of this, God kind of comes down with the hammer and just before, right, just before that hammer lands on us, Jesus slips in and takes the punishment for us. This kind of exchange happens that what was supposed to be visited on us for our violations is in fact visited on Jesus Christ. Innocent, but standing in the place of those who are guilty. Does this sound familiar to anybody who maybe grew up in faith? This is the dominant understanding of atonement in Western Christianity. We'll talk about timeline in a minute. So that's satisfaction in just like a nutshell. What grew up alongside satisfaction theory, and over time this turns into something we would call substitutionary atonement or penal substitutionary atonement, where it really starts to sound like you're in a courtroom. Which, by the way, I was in a courtroom recently um, for a very like small claims case. Uh, against the city of Pasadena, and it was a crazy, anxious process. Uh, this one creates for me a lot of internal anxiety, this idea of standing before the judge of all and being exposed in, like, deep vulnerability, being seen fully. You may feel this way sometimes, which is often why we are afraid to show up fully in church or in prayer or in relationships. We just don't feel worthy to do so. The next one is what we call moral influence. Moral influence says we were created in the image of God. Blessed, called beloved, called tov, called good. But over time, we lose our ability to love rightly. God is love. And the love that we feel, the affections we feel, are like a glimmer or a spark of what is inside, but we have lost the practice. And what we need to solve our condition, our inability to love right, our disordered desires, is we really need an example. We need somebody who can show us what love looks like. And then we will see that person and we will rise to the occasion. It's kind of like this moral exemplar. So what Jesus does is Jesus loves fully. Jesus looks like, sounds like, says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God. So when we see Jesus, our hearts are elevated. And it like awakens in us this kind of primal, deep, true nature. Okay? Now in death, we see the ultimate expression of love. Greater love has no person than this, that they would lay their life down for their friends. It says in the scriptures. So we see Christ stepping into that place of shame and loneliness. And we feel our hearts rise as we experience God's love toward us. This is the moral influence idea. That the goodness, the grace, and the love of Christ that we can see and we can practice with. So this idea of like this image of this finger pointing upwards, like, you know, elevate yourself. 
your own abilities that God has given you to love rightly, to reorder your desires. That's moral influence. You with me still? We got one more. The next one is Christus Victor. This is a great one. I love this one. And this one, I would say, is this, this is the early church's theory of atonement. It is also the one that if you're like in scripture, you will probably feel is the most salient, the one that is the most attested to. And it is this idea that somehow death reigns. It just does, right? And that the fear of death, and you heard this in Saskia's reading today, and you would have read it on the screen, that the fear of death is what holds us captive. We feel like this intense existential angst all the time. This awareness that things are temporary, that people suffer, that the systems in place often lead us into spaces of dysfunction and sin. It's really hard, friends, to live in cultures saturated by greed. It just is. It is hard to love rightly whenever everything in the world is telling us that I am number one and that I really need to keep sort of control over my life and those who have access to me. It's hard to live in a world that is broken. Christus Victor says that there is a force or forces, powers and principalities, the evil one, Satan, the devil, forces allied against us, against God's goodness. And that we are unable on our own to do battle against those forces. But Christ is able. Do you remember in the garden when Jesus is tempted by the devil, by the accuser? Like three temptations? It says in one of the gospels at the end when Jesus resists that Satan leaves to come back at an opportune time. You can feel the ways that the forces of the shadow world are allied against the work in the reign of God. And so, all through Jesus' life, you can feel this struggle happen. Exorcisms, healings, restoring people back into right relationships. Everything that the evil one has undone, Jesus is resisting and inviting us into those patterns of standing firm in the truths of God. And then, the world, the evil one, does its worst at the cross, submits, subjects Jesus to the worst kind of death, shame, criminal, nobody on the cross. Let us not make the cross something that it isn't. It is, in fact, the worst. We wear crosses around our necks. We have them in beautiful spots behind our screen in our sanctuary. But this is the biggest conundrum of Christianity, that Jesus dies this way. But this is how evil would like it to be. So Jesus submits to death, and death thinks it's one. There are all of these different tellings about the celebration of the evil one at the death. We got him! We got Jesus! And then the trick, right? Because it turns out that the one that death has tried to swallow up is in fact strong enough to undo death from within. New Testament says the last enemy to be laid at Christ's feet is death itself. So Christ is victorious. There is this cosmic struggle that is happening all of the time. And yet, God in Christ has won. So these are the three I want to pull out today. There are like 8, 10, 20 nuances to these. It's like how many Baptist versions of church are there? There's a lot. There's a lot of nuance inside each of these. One of the questions that arises in what 
are understood as competing understandings. We're not, we're not holding on to the idea of competition, but often we think in these kind of either-or categories. Is Toward what is the work of Christ aimed? Who needs Christ's death? Who needs the work of Christ in each of these stories? So let me just show you kind of the different places that these are aimed. For this satisfaction, this substitutionary atonement, God's own sense of justice and honor are violated in our sin. And so the work of Jesus is aimed at satisfying some kind of inner logic within the divine. There is no presence of the evil one or of the devil in this. It's simply there is a kind of cosmic ordering to the universe and our sin disrupts that. And so Jesus comes and points the work of Christ toward God so that God is satisfied so that, right, we don't receive the punishment we deserve. In this kind of moral influence understanding, we are the ones who are unable to love like we are supposed to. And so the work of Christ is aimed toward our own affections. We are the ones who are changed in the equation. And of course, in this Christus Victor cosmic struggle, the work of Christ is aimed toward the powers that are allied against the work of God. We often name that as Satan, the accuser, the devil, the evil one, the powers and principalities, idolatry. Got a lot of words for it. These can all be true, but often they are different kind of understandings. And there are different times in our own lives where we feel acutely the work that sin has done. And the distance we feel may resonate with one of these areas more than another. We are talking on Thursday, and the angel, you brought this out, the, that Christus Victor is really, really important when people re- discover that inside of like recovery in 12 steps. Because the feeling of addiction that is out of control is that there is somehow a force in your life that is holding you, that has you bound, and you really need Jesus to be able to break that stronghold. The Gospel of Mark talks about Jesus as the one who binds the strong man and is strong enough to do that. There are other times where some of these others might feel more resonant. Okay. In the West, for reasons I'll show you in just a moment, this idea of satisfaction or substitutionary atonement has become the dominant and at times the only allowed understanding of the work of Christ. If you grew up in like maybe a conservative Baptist tradition, for me it was Southern Baptist when I was a kid, uh, inside you're sort of ordering documents. It's called the Baptist Faith and Message. And they talk about atonement and salvation. This is the only theory that's allowed. The others are understood as heresies. It's a bad way to understand atonement, but it is common. And so what does it mean to live inside a world where this is the only way we can understand the work of Christ? I would say it's anemic, but I would say we are missing a lot of what is happening inside of this story. But let me tell you how we got here, because it's super important for how we understand where we're going. So you've got a timeline right on the left side. You've got sort of the beginning of the, the church as we know it. Um, Jesus shows up on the scene in what we would call the incarnation or God becoming flesh, lives his life in his early 30s, is killed by the authorities at the time, by Rome and by the mobs of people, stirred to violence. And then in our telling of this story that Jesus does not stay dead but rises from the dead, institutes a community that we now call the church, a reconstituted Israel in the disciples that spread this word out through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of 
the earth. So you have this period of the early church. Then you move forward to like 2019 in Pasadena, and we are now handed a tradition. And it turns out that we don't go all the way back to like 33 AD to get our theology, but we are in the middle of a flow of tradition and history and interpretation. Okay. So Christus Victor, this is kind of illustrated here in the gray. The sort of way that it worked uh, is that it was the understanding in the early church. If you go and read what we would call the patristics or the church fathers and mothers, Athanasius, Augustine, they're mostly dudes, by the way. Um, unfortunately, there is a minority opinion that is voiced inside of theology uh, that we would do well to listen to. Cosmic struggle, victorious Christ, is pretty much the way that we understand salvation, but it fades sometime between the 4th, 5th, and 6th century until it becomes almost obsolete. It shows back up in a meaningful way. And this is all kind of our Western understanding of Christianity because the East splits off early and is allowed to sort of germinate and evolve over time in a very different direction. It's a little bit like how animals seem to have evolved in like Australia, just like super weird and just kind of contingent on that place in that context. Something happens in that slide down that we'll talk about. And then this guy named Gustav Allen writes a book called Christus Victor in the last uh, 100 years or so that sort of brings this idea back to the fore. And it becomes super important for me personally, and I'll say why. After this, you have, and this shows how important it becomes, substitutionary atonement. It is not the way that the early church typically thinks about the work life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but over time it becomes really important and the only way that a lot of times people understand it. Kind of picks up as Christus Victor goes down, you see substitutionary atonement on the rise, and then sometime, you know, 11th, 12th century on, especially after the Reformation, it is the dominant way to understand the work of Christ. And then within this also you have this moral influence, the one of Jesus loves so that we learn how to love, and it's there, but it is never quite as ascendant as the other's. So it's kind of beating in the background with substitutionary atonement. This is what they look like together. It's kind of overlap. Did you know that this is the history that we sit within? Never just one dominant understanding, but all of these kind of intermixed together. So one of the questions becomes why? What is happening in the early church that makes this understanding of the work of Christ so important? And what changes that allows that to sort of disappear into oblivion for a long time? Well, let me tell you what was happening and what changed. Early in the church's history, it was a minority community. It is hard to remember this because look at this building. We're like right across the street from City Hall. All Saints is on the other side of City Hall. We are sandwiching the powers of this world with these beautiful opulent spaces that were built at times when Christianity was understood as the way to be a citizen in this country. It's a big religion. It's an important religion. It has all kinds of credibility for a long, long time. That is not the way the early church operated. It was a minority community, like often in the midst of persecution and oppression, Not protected by the nation state. Scrappy. If you read the book of Revelation, which we often don't think about until we're thinking about the end times, it's a book about what it means to be a minority community and how to stay faithful when the powers that be are set against you. When Rome is in persecution mode, 
when your friends are being martyred for their faithfulness. And so this understanding that Jesus can bind the strong man, that Jesus can do battle with these forces, these powers and principalities, and can be victorious. Oh, it's so important to those early Christians. Something happens, though. For the longest time in the early church, they understood that they were serving the resurrected Christ, that the reign of God had been made known and visible in Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, in the nonviolent position of resistance to the powers that be. But what happens when those who wield the sword in the world take up, adopt, and adapt the story of Jesus for other purposes? What happens when Rome says that is now going to be our religion? And then the church realizes that they are no longer standing sort of in resistance to the powers that be, but are now accommodating them. When all of a sudden the word of the emperor means a lot. We usually say Constantine stands at this rift, but he's just kind of the beginning of it over time. When the church is no longer a minority position, but is in fact stamped by the empire, it doesn't make a lot of sense for Jesus to be struggling with the powers that be. It makes a lot more sense that Jesus is justifying whatever work the powers might have to do in the world. So you see the slippage that happens. Now you can see right here another thing happens. Um, I asked the group on Thursday to talk about feudalism. Do, does everybody remember feudalism from, how is it, middle school? When did we learn about feudalism, Cindy? I don't know. It's sort of an arrangement of the world, and, and often our theology is built on how we understand arrangements of the world. Um, you know, so nowadays we might think like, oh, the way that God's reign is made visible is at the ballot box. Because often we think the only way to affect change in the world is at the ballot box. That's sort of what it means to live inside a liberal democracy. But at the time of feudalism, it was like the lords and the serfs. The lords stand at kind of the top of the hierarchy and they demand a certain kind of honor to keep the social order intact. And if you violate that honor, right, if you sin, then you owe a debt to the lord. And you've got to repay it. It's a problem. It also works really good to try to understand the debt that we owe to God. Now, here's what this guy named Anselm says at this time as he's writing a book called Why the God-Man, or Cure Deus Homo, says that because humanity has sinned and incurred this debt, we owe something to God's honor or we owe something to the justice scales that we have unbalanced. We need to pay that debt. But it turns out that God deserves honor all the time, like forever, infinitely. So anytime we mess up, we're never going to be able to pay that debt back because what we owe to God is infinite fidelity. And if we screw up once, we are in a forever debt position. It's like if your credit card interest costs more than your paycheck, like you're always sort of falling deeper and deeper into that indebtedness. That's the situation we find ourselves in. So Anselm says, we owe the debt, but we really need someone to pay the debt. It's got to be someone from our world, someone from our species. It's got to be a human, but none of us are strong enough to do so. So the God man, Jesus shows up as one of us, God in flesh and pays the debt we owe. Only a human could pay it, but only a divine agent being could satisfy it. It works perfect for feudalism. It works perfect in a worldview where the hierarchy of the world is the way that things are run. That's what Anselm gives us. And then the reformers, so Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, around the time of the Protestant Reformation, take and really strengthen this position in its kind of law understanding. 
And then you've got this really funny story that exists right around the time of Anselm, which is, I put a little heart there because it's cute. But also, there's this guy named Abelard who's writing after Anselm. These are all these names that we, we would love to know. So I'm giving them to you. You are so very welcome. <laughs> all of this church history on this Sunday morning right before the puppy pit. Abelard is a Christian thinker, theologian, and writer who is also always trying to understand what Jesus is about and how Jesus matters. Abelard falls in love. He's not supposed to be in love with anybody because he's supposed to be celibate, right? Just him and God working things out. He falls in love with this woman. They have this sort of toward love affair. They have a child together in secret. And he is the one who gives us moral Influence This idea that the love of God raises our own love. Of course he is. He's in the middle of working out his understanding of God and Christ while also deeply in love himself. And so he becomes sort of the one who births this theory of atonement. There's a sad part to Abelard's story with his uh, woman he loves that we can talk about another time. Their letters, by the way, are published and they're beautiful and sad at the same time. Um, so... This is the map of salvation history in at least its three dominant forms. Not sure maybe why all of this matters except for this. One writer says that all theology is theologia viatorum, or theology on the way. So much of the time we crave a definitive one time for all answer to these questions about what is happening inside of our story of God in Christ reconciling the world to God and to itself. But there is in fact not one for all times dominant understanding because all theology is storied, right? We are living it in context. This is super important. Because there are times, even now, when we pick up these stories, these ancient stories, and we say, what does this mean for me today? What is God saying to us in this community, in the way that power is arranged in L.A., in Pasadena, in my family, in my heart? Turns out the traditions that we inherit are themselves storied, are contextual, driven by a time and a place, by people who are living and struggling with Feudalism, with a secret love affair, with accommodations to power in the empire, in our country, with a nation founded on principles we would say are like Judeo-Christian, but also founded on the idea of owning people to keep your economy moving forward. How do you accommodate theology to the time and place, or how do you accommodate your time and place to the visibility of the reign of God you see in the text and in the community we call the church. I've got a couple of minutes left with you. I want to say this next part as clear as I can. In the early church, Back up. Toward the end of Jesus' story. 
the violence that has reigned inside of creation for thousands of years is visited upon the flesh and blood body of Jesus the Messiah in the most acute and humiliating way possible at that time. If you want to see what humanity has wrought, you only have to look at the cross. It is the space where you can feel cruelty and expediency meet. And if we are brave enough to see it for long enough, we will feel the pain of God present in that moment. To speak for a moment about the women theologians over time, Julian of Norwich is obsessed with entering into the passion and pain of Jesus on the cross. And it enlightens her to all of these different understandings of atonement from inside that one moment. So the early church understands that the work of violence in the world is the product of sin both individually and as a system. So anytime the the sword shows up, it is understood as the weapon wielded by the world or the powers or the evil one to do death, being the wages of sin that we have brought into creation. That's why early church Christians were not permitted to wield the sword. There was this early debate about whether or not Christians can serve in the military. Of course, over time, we put crosses on our shields. And you fast forward to when we were able to split atoms and turn metal into destruction. And you name those bombs what? What did we name those early nuclear warheads? The the Trinity Project. You can feel the way the theology begins to baptize violence. This is an unfortunate and I would say the most tragic accommodation that faithfulness has made or faithlessness has made. Because over time, Christians are not resistors of the world's violence, but are in fact wielders of it. And what have we lost as we've accommodated the violence of this world inside our understandings of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus? It is the way we have lost the plot. Especially for Baptists, who at our core have been a people of nonviolence, when you look back through our history, to recapture our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities, the rulers of this world, thrones and dominions allied against the reign of God. It's been a really important position for Baptists over time. This rejection of the world's violence as the means toward God's good ends. We see this today. I've got a couple minutes. We see this today, for instance, in our the way we think about justice, our criminal justice system. Retributive justice, right? The reason we punish people is because they deserve it. Retribution, revenge. This is a dominant way to understand why people have consequences legally for what they do wrong. This is a bad understanding of theology overlaid on top of cultural organization. 
we used to call prisons penitentiaries because they were places for penance, for restitution or reformation. There's another way to understand justice, which is that which restores people back into their true identity and belonging. We've lost that over time, this idea of restorative justice. In our country, this idea of atonement that needs the violence of God to accomplish it, somehow God subjects Jesus to death in this kind of removed position. It becomes a justification for all kinds of oppression that we visit upon one another. There is a very simple way that people all through our country, especially in the Deep South, were able to own slaves and also be deacons in their church. You just turn salvation into a private affair between you and God, where the work of that salvation is after you die and you go to heaven. Salvation is not about the struggles for justice today. It's about what happens later. And it's not about upsetting the hierarchies at place. It's about solidifying them. For a long time, slaveholders did not want to teach slaves the gospel because they knew... This story talks about freedom. This story talks about release of the captives. We can't tell them this story until they realize they can rework substitutionary atonement so that it's just about a privatization of faith. Has no moral implications for the way the systems are ordered in this world or undoing those. But Jesus shows up and lives 30 plus years healing, exercising, welcoming, eating with, restoring in all kinds of ways the work that sin has undone. Jesus makes the reign of God visible. So if you want to see what the power of God at work in Christ looks like, you just have to see Jesus. The way he speaks, the way he lives, the way he embraces, the way he undoes, and the reasons that the powers come after him are because of those convictions all through his life. And they come to a head at the crucifixion. Christ does not pick up the sword. In fact, is asked, why won't you pick up the sword? But says, if I wanted to, I could call down power. But it is not the time. And tells Peter in the garden, put your sword away. for expediency, and for all kinds of bad motives, Christians have confused our ability to wield the world's violence toward God's good ends. But what we see in Christ is a submission to and a willingness to suffer with us so that God's dream might be possible, which is that all things would be made new. There are understandings of atonement, of the way that Christ saves us, that lead us in two directions, both of which are flawed. One is to assume, I got the right story, y'all, and you got the wrong story. So, my ability to understand the work of Christ correctly gives me just a little bit better position than you. It puts me up just one ring on the hierarchy. It gives me pride and ego and all of those sort of things. Look what I did. It's this triumphalist position. 
It's caused people to move into, in colonialism, places where Christ is understood differently and try to change the social order to conform it to one understanding. Or it leads people to think, what a mess I am. I mean, like, look at everything that I've broken and all I feel is shame. How could God ever, ever love me? I know that God loves Jesus and so God has to love me, but man, God's just kind of stuck in a bind having to put up with me. It's either sort of like I am amazing or I am absolutely nothing. A correct understanding of what Jesus is doing leads us to this. This is the last thing I will say today. It is easy for you to carry. It is not burdensome. It comes from one of our greatest theologians of the last hundred years, Karl Barth. It says, to believe in Jesus Christ, it means to become thankful. It doesn't put us on our heels in anxiety for the next blow that might come. And it doesn't put us in this elevated position to look down on the rest of creation or those who've not figured it out yet. To believe in Jesus, it settles us in a good land with enough grace and enough forgiveness and enough love that we don't have to be afraid anymore of the powers of death that still are active, right? It's not hard to look around and see them. But to move through this world in gratefulness for all that God has done. This is the key when you find yourself thankful. You know you are approaching close to the heart of God. So I'm not asking you to choose today, but just to imagine that the work that Christ is doing and has done is bigger than any one version of the telling. In whatever ways we feel trapped in these broken stories, that acute pain you feel, that there is a way to tell the story of salvation that addresses that pain. However far away you are, God has made a way back home. Good God, in all of the ways, that we are so very far away from one another and from wholeness, we need desperately for it to be true that Christ has made a way, has broken down the wall that divides. Let me finish with just one piece of reading from a book, if anybody is so brave as to tackle 600 pages of theology, Fleming Rutledge wrote a book called The Crucifixion a few years back, and it is a bit of a magnum opus. But at the end of it, she says, The power of God to make right what has been wrong is what we see by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. Unless God is the one who raises the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, there cannot be serious talk of forgiveness for the worst of the worst, the mass murderers, tortures, and serial killings, or even for the least of the worst, the quotidian offenses against our common humanity that cause marriages to fail, friendships to end, enterprises to collapse, and silent misery to be common lot of millions. 
For all sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone, the quote says. This is what's happening with Golgotha. All the magnifold biblical images with their richness, complexity, and death come together as one to say this. The righteousness of God is revealed in the cross of Christ. What a mess and what a scandal. The precious blood of the Son of God is the perfect sacrifice for sin. The ransom is paid to deliver the captives. The gates of hell are stormed. The Red Sea is crossed and the enemy is drowned. God's judgment has been executed upon sin. The disobedience of Adam is recapitulated in the obedience of Christ. A new creation is coming into being. Those who put their trust in Christ are incorporated into his life. The kingdoms of this present evil age are passing away and the promised kingdom of God is manifest. Not in our triumphalist crusades, but in the cruciform witness of the church. From within Adam's and our own human flesh, the incarnate, enfleshed son with and was victorious over Satan on our behalf and in our place. Only this power, this transcendent victory won by the son of God is capable of reorienting the cosmos to its rightful creator. This is what the righteousness of God has achieved through the cross and resurrection, is now accomplishing by the power of the Spirit and will complete in the day of Jesus Christ. This is our story, friends. Carry it with courage. You have been set free. You have been saved. You have been healed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And for this, we are grateful. Would you pray with me? God, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you have done and all you are doing and all you will do for what you have made possible. In this space, relax the hearts and souls of my friends that they would believe in gratitude this good news, that the work has been done and that sin and death no longer reign in any meaningful way in this world. Prepare us to make visible your kingdom, your power, and your reign here now. Give us patience to not wield the weapons of this world with expediency, but to trust in the slow work of your salvation. For us and for our neighbors, for creation, for systems. God, we love you and we want to love the world like you love it. Bring us near to your heart that would bring us near to everything. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Amen.